I've always enjoyed the circus. And my favorite act is the lion tamer. He struts in among hungry lions. He flicks his whip. He holds his stool. I'd love to be a lion tamer. It's obvious why the lion tamer flicks his whip. It's crack. It's sting. Let's the lion know he means business. Yet until recently, I never really knew why the lion tamer held a stool. Do you know? Why stick a stool in the face of a man-eating lion? Well, here's why. The stool's legs confuse and disorient the lion. He tries to focus on all four legs at once and gets overwhelmed. A mental paralysis sort of sets in and fragments his attention. The lion is disabled. The lion acts tame. And psychologists say that the same phenomena occurs among humans. When too many tasks jockey for our attention, a paralysis sets in. We can freeze up. The relentless demands of modern life fragment our attention. They sap us of our strength and our resolve. And we succumb to someone's whip. We end up acting tame and weak. Rather than roar into life, our roar becomes a meow. Yet this is not what happened to Jesus. He too felt the crack of the whip. He was confronted by numerous voices. Yet Jesus always stayed on task. Jesus handled the pressure. And we see this firsthand in Mark chapters 3 and 4. Verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Now implied is that this crippled man was planted by the Jews who opposed Jesus. Jesus loved people. His enemies knew that it was his habit to heal. But if he did so on the Sabbath, they could accuse him of breaking the law. Now remember, when God gave the fourth commandment, he blessed mankind with a day of rest and worship and play to balance out the work week. God never intended, though, for it to become treated as a legalistic straitjacket that would make our lives unnecessarily hard and difficult. That was not his intention for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the opposite happened. The Sabbath rules became a burden on mankind. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees said, they went as far as to say that any healing on the Sabbath constituted work and thus was a sin. On the Sabbath, you could prevent death. You could apply a tourniquet to stop someone's bleeding, or you could draw a bath of cold water to control their fever. But you could, you could keep a person from worsening, but proactive care was forbidden. And thus the Pharisees hoped that Jesus would heal this man, violate the Sabbath rules, and they would have an accusation against him. Well, Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Jesus knew this was a trap, but notice he refuses to back down. In fact, he calls the man out. One paraphrase reads, stand here where we can see you. The Jews had put Jesus on the spot. Now he's putting them on the spot. He calls this man with a crippled hand front and center. Verse 4, then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill, 
but they kept silent. They are the ones that are now trapped. Jesus is asking them what's more important, keeping rules that make you feel self-righteous or doing good and helping people. The answer was obvious. Evil never, never takes a day off. Why should doing good? And when he had looked around at them, the Phillips translation reads, he looked around meeting their eyes. Jesus made it personal with each person in the room. He looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Now, I don't know where we ever got the idea of always gentle, laid-back Jesus. For here, Jesus gets hopping mad. The blood he shed to save us also boiled in anger toward the legalists. Realize Jesus got angry, but not at what we would. It wasn't lost sinners that riled him. He had compassion on the folks we would call bad boys and girls. Rather, Jesus got angry at the religious crowd, the people who put rules and traditions ahead of people. Here's what's happening in this story. Puny little men are telling God what he can and can't do. They're hemming God in, trying to. They're putting God in a box. They're saying to the Lord Jesus, you can heal six days a week, but knock it off on Sunday, would you? Jesus is about to let the Pharisees know he can do whatever he pleases. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He came into the world to save and to heal. And even today, Jesus wants to restore what sin has withered away. He still gets angry when legalistic people try to limit how he can help and how he can heal. Verse 5, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now think about that. He's saying to a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. Understand, that's an impossible command for this fellow. If this man could have stretched out his hand, he would have done so a long time ago. Jesus is asking him to do what he could never do on his own. But we're told, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. What's going on? Understand, in your body, electrical signals travel along nerve fibers at over 300 miles per hour. That means that in a nanosecond, a message can travel from your brain to your hand. When Jesus issued this command, this man had to make a choice. He either had to obey Jesus and trust in what Jesus said or rely on what had always been. To stretch out his balled up, gnarled up, crippled hand, rather than focus on his atrophied muscles, he had to believe in the word of Jesus and he had to act on his faith. And in the millisecond it took for the message to travel from his brain to his fingers, his withered hand was made whole. And understand, this is how good God works in our lives today. All God's miracles begin as impossible commands. See, we all have withered areas in our lives that are limp and paralyzed and wasting away. Withered hopes, withered joys, withered dreams and relationships, even withered ministries, dried up areas of our lives. But in the moment we choose to believe, in the moment we take Jesus at his word, he can restore when we act on what he tells us to do, miracles occur. 
God makes the impossible possible. Do you feel like obeying? Did the man with the withered hand feel like stretching out his hand? Of course not. And perhaps you don't feel like obeying. A withered hand, a withered area is impotent. The healing doesn't happen on its own. It's when you choose to obey Jesus that the miracle occurs. That means that it's you that has to take the first step. Tonight, why don't you stretch out your withered part to Jesus? Well, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Notice, rather than back down, Jesus backed the Pharisees into the corner. And now they're plotting to kill him. But see, here's how you stay true to your mission. Even in the face of intimidation, even when the lion tamer sticks the stool in your face, you get angry. You take a stand. That's how you push back. Rather than be pushed into a corner and boxed in by prejudice, you remember what God has called you to do. Jesus was sent by God into the world to do good and to help people, and he kept it just that simple. Verse 7, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. The cities mentioned in these verses cover a hundred-mile radius. They all came to Jesus from over a hundred miles away. Remember that the next time you complain about your 30-minute drive to church. The point, though, is that thousands of people, Mark calls them a great multitude, were flocking to see Jesus. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude lest they should crush him. Crowd control had become a real problem. I mean, this crowd was, was closing in to the point to where Jesus could get crushed. For Jesus healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. These were desperate people with desperate needs, and they all wanted to get close to Jesus. Literally, this verse reads, lest they fall upon him. Jesus was being physically threatened by the crowds. Hey, picture frenzied fans storming the field after a controversial call ends the football game. Fans swarming the players, tearing down the goalposts. Well, this was Jesus' congregation. This is how they were acting. Rather than a church congregation, they were acting more like a mob. And if the scene wasn't crazy enough, verse 11 puts it over the top. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. He didn't want the demons advertising for him. I mean, this would be like Playboy magazine running a favorable article on Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. We, we, tried to stop, we would try to stop the publication. We wouldn't want to be identified with the source. It's bad public relations here for demons to advertise for Jesus. That's why he commands them to stop. But understand, this was quite a crowd of sketchy people following Jesus. I mean, imagine dangerous, bizarre, these wild-eyed, ill-behaved, out-of-control folks all surrounding Jesus. Some of them were foaming at the mouth. They were convulsing in the dirt. Demon-dominated people were swarming around Jesus. 
If the U.S. Secret Service had been assigned to protect Jesus, they would have declared a security nightmare. Jesus had been sent to help people, but the people he came to help might have easily trampled him. Which brings up another truth. Understand this, and if you, if you ever hope to be used by Jesus to serve the Lord in meaningful ways, understand this. Hurting people often hurt other people. I was always taught, never swim to a drowning man. For in his desperation, he would pull you under. Stay at a distance and throw him a lifeline. That's how you help him. You don't want to drown with the guy you're trying to save. And the same is true in ministry. We're called to love and help hurting people. But to do so, we can get trampled. In our doing so, we can get trampled by their neediness. A desperate person has a way of pulling you under. If you let them, some folks will take all your time, your money, your energy. If you're going to stay healthy and serve the Lord effectively, you have to create some space between yourself and the hurting people you're trying to reach. I have to live my life and love my family as I try to help yours. I can't sacrifice mine and still be faithful helping yours. This is why Jesus wisely ordered his men to keep a small boat near the shore. This was his buffer between himself and the crowds. In the boat, he could kind of row out a few yards and keep the crowds at bay as he taught them and as he ministered to them. It's interesting, though Jesus kept a healthy buffer, he never grew aloof and distant from the crowds. He became more accessible to them by recruiting 12 men to help him minister. We're told, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. This was a stroke of genius. The answer to the growing demands of his ministry wasn't isolation, but delegation. Jesus recruited the help of 12 men. D.L. Moody once said, I would rather put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. This is the way you manage any ministry. You delegate as much as you can to faithful men. In verses 16 to 19, Mark lists the men that Jesus recruited. He says, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. These two guys had a temper that got him into trouble from time to time. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into the house. Now, what a cast of characters to get together under the same roof. Talk about diversity. These men were all over the social spectrum. Take Matthew and Simon. Matthew, a tax collector, was a Roman collaborator. Simon was a Jewish patriot. This term, Canaanite, it isn't a reference to his nationality. It means zealous. Simon was a zealot. This this was a group of political radicals who hated Romans and Jews who helped them. The zealots were known as dagger men. 
which referred to the knife that Simon carried under his cloak and used on Roman sympathizers, men like Matthew. This was the kind of people Jesus got together and called his men, his disciples. Matthew and Simon the Zealot were as compatible as a Black Panther and a Ku Klux Klansman. And yet, amazingly, Jesus reconciled these men to themselves. He made them brothers. And you know what I would suggest? If he could do that with these guys, he can do the same with us. Verse 20. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now note, Jesus' own people... His family and friends called him crazy. They said he was out of his mind. They thought the pressures had gotten to him. He wasn't eating. Jesus had gone nuts. And if you follow Jesus, don't be surprised when they say of you, he is out of his mind. You follow a man they can't see. You obey orders they don't hear. You sense a love that they haven't received. You treat people with kindness that they don't deserve. Our lives don't make sense to unbelievers if we follow Christ. That means don't get discouraged when the world calls you out of your mind. Let me tell you, what the world today needs is a few more Christian crazies. That's what we need. Jesus' own people thought that he was deranged, but worse, the Jews accused him of being possessed by a demon. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. The name Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. It was a Jewish name for Satan, the chief of all the demons. Obviously, the exorcisms that Jesus performed were legit. The Jews made no effort to deny that they had occurred. Rather, they try to discredit the source of Jesus' power. They say that Jesus is casting out demons by demons. Well, Jesus replies to this accusation. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but has an end. Why would Satan cast out Satan and undermine his own cause? It was illogical. Understand, I believe that demon possession wasn't just a first century phenomenon. I believe it still occurs today. But in our so-called enlightened age, it goes by other names. Today it's referred to sometimes as dysfunctional behavior or as a pathological personality. I believe the serial killer or the serial rapist is often demon-possessed. At times, demon possession is a mis- misdiagnosed as mental illness. Not always, but sometimes. Sadly, Satan continues to steal, kill, and destroy. In verse 27, Jesus answers his critics and he explains his exorcisms, his casting out of the demons. And as he does, he shares the key to our spiritual warfare. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. 
In other words, when Jesus faced a demon-controlled person, rather than deal with the man's symptoms, he cut right to the trace. He exercised spiritual authority over the forces that were controlling the person. Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is by far stronger. And once the strong man is restrained, then you're able to go in and free up the person. And this is what we need to remember when we're witnessing to our friends. Before we open our mouth, we first should get on our knees and do battle spiritually. For through prayer, we can bind the strong man. We can limit Satan's influence. We can break his hold on that person. Then after we've prayed and won the spiritual battle, then we can come to our friend and we can be there and point them to Jesus. But without first binding the enemy, we're only spinning our wheels. You see, it's true. There's a lot we can do after we've prayed, but there's nothing we can do until we've prayed. What Jesus says to his accusers in verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. No passage in the Bible is as misinterpreted as this idea of the unpardonable sin. First, let me tell you what it's not. It's not cursing God or succumbing to a particularly vile sin or even thinking horridly evil thoughts. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is resisting the Spirit's purpose and mission. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. What is the Holy Spirit's job? He comes to testify of Jesus. Thus, blasphemy against the Spirit is to reject the Holy Spirit's witness of Jesus. It's to turn a deaf ear to the Spirit's call and conviction in our lives. Die having never heeded what God's Spirit says about Jesus, and it is a sin that will never be forgiven. See, here's what's going on in our text. The Jews had heard God the Father speak from heaven. Remember at his baptism, Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father spoke audibly, yet they denied his voice. Strike one. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. He forgave people's sins. He fulfilled his messianic claims. Again, the Jews heard and saw these claims, yet they denied Jesus. Strike two. Now Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these same Jewish leaders are witnessing these miracles. Yet here, they're denying the work of the Holy Spirit. They're ascribing to evil spirits the work of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? Strike three. You're out. Jesus is saying, deny the witness of all three persons of the Godhead, and it's three strikes and you're out. See, a person can reject the Father's testimony of Jesus, and then there's still Jesus in the Spirit to testify. They can reject the Father's testimony and Jesus' claims, and yet there's still hope 
For the Holy Spirit will come, but when you turn a deaf ear to the personal witness of God's Spirit in your heart, there's no one left to speak. After you've rejected the Father's testimony and the Son's testimony and the Spirit's testimony, there's, nowhere, there's no one else to speak. Thus, that is the sin that can't be forgiven. If you reject his testimony, there's no, there's no testimony left. God said in Genesis 6 verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. The Holy Spirit will come to us. He'll tug at our hearts. He'll pursue us. But not forever. You can resist your heart. You can harden your heart to the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you're not guaranteed another chance. This is why when you feel his tug, please respond. Verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Now remember, his own people had thought he was out of his mind. Now his brother and his mother's come. They want to talk to him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now first, if you're of a Roman Catholic persuasion, and you're praying to Mary, expecting her to have some kind of clout with Jesus and intercede for you, then you're going to be terribly disappointed. Folks sitting next to Jesus tell him that his mother wants to see him. And notice how Jesus reacts. He doesn't even give her the time of day. That's why I'm just saying, hailing Mary is a waste of time. Sorry, but you'll get no further than hailing a taxi driver. The Bible is clear. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 tells us there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is the last time we see Mary in the Scriptures, and other believers are praying with her, not to her. I'm sure you've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water. We hear Jesus is saying, spirit is thicker than blood. Family is a powerful bond, but Jesus formed spiritual ties to his followers that eclipsed even his family. I know Christians who've made their nuclear family everything. In fact, they're worshiping their family, not Jesus. It's good to focus on the family, but if Jesus is your Lord, he's your top priority, not your family. Jesus refused to allow family pressures to distract him from what God had called him to do. And we need to have the same attitude. Now, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a series of stories. Jesus was a great storyteller. You should know that. He called his stories parables. They were stories from daily life with a spiritual punchline. And in chapter 4, we have some of his most famous parables. They're called the kingdom parables. They describe the nature and growth of God's kingdom on the earth. In these verses, Jesus reveals the reason that over a third of his teaching was done with stories or parables. Verse 1, And again he began to teach by the sea. 
And a great multitude was gathered to him. So that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables. The Greek word para means alongside. Balo means to cast. And so a parabolo or a parable is to cast alongside. A parable is a picture that's placed beside a principle. A good teacher looks for windows into a truth. He finds pictures and stories that he uses to illustrate his lessons. Jesus didn't invent the use of parables, but by far he perfected their use. No one was better at it than Jesus. Remember, he used the birds to illustrate God's providence, the lilies of the field to talk about God's provision. Jesus spoke of a wayward son and his return home to convey God's pardon. Jesus painted masterpieces of God's truth with common colors and on everyday canvases. Jesus' stories drew people in. You know, folks would come to Jesus skeptical, defensive, even hostile. And then he'd tell them a story. And just like a big mouth bass spotting a plump, juicy worm in the water, they'd bite it and they'd get hooked. As Jesus spun his story, it would be like spinning a reel, just reeling the person in. Jesus was an angler of souls who could tug at the line in just such a way that you'd take the book, bait, hook, line, and sinker. His stories let the truth sneak up on you before you could push it away. In parables, the truth could slip past your defenses. And this was true of the parable that he begins in verse 2. And Jesus said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, verses 14 to 20 are going to interpret this parable. So right now, let's just read through it. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And this is a strange idea, strange words he's saying. But understand, Jesus used parables to conceal as well as to reveal. For some folks, the parable helped them see the truth. But for others, it blinded them to the truth. Now realize, Jesus was such a powerful and persuasive presenter of truth 
that if he just laid it all out in a straightforward manner, his listeners would have no other choice. I mean, Jesus was compelling. He could have talked people into the right decisions. But Jesus doesn't want to just convince your mind without your heart following. He wants you to follow him not just because it makes sense to do so. He wants you to want to. He wants it to be your desire to follow him. And that was the purpose of a parable. It was a truth on a covert operation. A parable is an undercover truth. A parable slips past the mind and first grabs you by the heart. In his teachings, Jesus taught to curious minds, but in his parables, he captured eager hearts. This was what made his parables so powerful. It spoke to the people on an emotional level. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? Now here Jesus provides an explanation for the revolutionary nature of the mysteries of his kingdom. Understand a biblical mystery. When we think of a mystery, we think of a whodunit. You know, the search for the smoking gun. But the word mystery can be defined as a sacred secret. In the Bible, a mystery is a truth that you would have never known unless God had revealed it. In reality, God's coming kingdom was certainly no secret. The Old Testament talked much about God's kingdom, but the way it would enter the world was a mystery. It was something that man wouldn't have grasped had God not revealed it. The Old Testament vision of God's coming kingdom depicted it as occurring in a single day. Messiah would return to earth, rout his enemies, dispose of its evil leadership, and establish a new world order on planet earth. At last, God's will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. This idea of the kingdom was well known in Jewish circles. Far from a secret, it was the passion and prayer of every Jew. They were waiting for this future event. But the Jews were focused on the climax of God's kingdom, not its beginnings. Its beginnings were the mystery. And Jesus teaches that before the kingdom of God smashes the enemy, it first sneaks across enemy lines. And it frees the POWs who are trapped in sin. God's kingdom comes to the throne of the human heart long before it sits on the throne of Israel. This was the mystery of the kingdom. In Luke 17, the Jews asked Jesus, where is this kingdom you keep talking about? Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation or outwardly. The kingdom of God is within you. In other words, before God's reign comes to earth politically and militarily and visibly, it arrives spiritually in human hearts. That's what God is doing in the world today. He's building up his kingdom one heart at a time. This one statement shattered all previous Jewish notions about God's kingdom. This was the new insight. If you were a Jew steeped in Old Testament theology, you would have considered Mark chapter 4 the most revolutionary chapter in the Bible. The Jews had a correct view of the kingdom's role at the end of the age, but what they lacked was insight into the initial phases of the kingdom in the affairs of mankind. 
Well, Jesus interprets his parable in verse 14. The sower sows the word. Notice the seed. The seed is what? The seed in the parable is what? It's the word. It's God's word. The kingdom of God doesn't begin with a war, but with a word. This, again, was so foreign to the Jews. They believed the kingdom of God would come forcibly. God would impose his will on mankind. But Jesus says the kingdom can be resisted, for it comes in a word. It can be accepted or rejected. It's like a seed that's sown, which means if we want to build God's kingdom in the world today, don't build walls, but sow seeds. That's how you build the kingdom today. People think the kingdom consists of human and political structures. And the key to spreading God's kingdom is to take over the power structures of this world, raise money, take over institutions. But where does a seed do its work? Underground, below the surface. It works below the surface of what's seen. It spreads as it's planted in the souls of human hearts. As a matter of fact, the success of the seed depends on the condition of the soil. You know, I used to think that all dirt was just dirt until we built a parking lot. But we discovered that, you know, they test the dirt. It has to percolate a certain way. And when we built our parking lot, we had to remove all the topsoil and we had to bring in some fill dirt, the right kind of dirt. There is a good dirt and there is a bad dirt. And this is what Jesus tells us in the next few verses. He refers to four types of soil where the seed of God's word might land. Hard ground, shallow ground, thorny ground, and fertile ground. And of course, here's the question you should be asking as we go through this. What type of soil am I? Verse 15. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now the wayside was the trampled path. Stomping of feet and hooves and wagon wheels made for hard, impenetrable soil. Seed can't grow on concrete. And there are people like the wayside. They've got a concrete heart. Their hopes, their dreams have been so trampled that as soon as the seed hits the ground, birds of skepticism eat it up. The word is never allowed to take root and grow deep. The wayside is the faithless heart. Verse 16, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Here's a case where the seed of truth, again, never develops roots. Understand the Christian life was never intended to be smooth sailing all the time. We can get bounced around. And this is why our faith has to be rooted. If your faith is dependent on circumstances or on your circle of Christian friends or on a friendly environment, understand it's doomed. Eventually, trouble will stumble your faith. For faith to survive, it has to grow deep. 
It has to tap into an inner reservoir of spiritual strength. You need to be able to draw upon the joy of the Holy Spirit if you're going to make it in the Christian life. Years ago, Eternity Magazine tracked the people who had come forward at a large evangelistic crusade. In the week of meetings, 4,106 decisions were made for Christ. But within the three months that they tracked those people, only 3% were still attending church at the end of those three months. That means that 3,981 people who came forward had an emotional moment perhaps, but they failed to follow through. We need to tell people that following Jesus is always worth it, but it's not always easy. Responding to the gospel is a commitment. Shallow faith doesn't survive. He says, now these are the ones, who, who, the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who heard the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Materialism chokes out the word. Notice the phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. That's the new house. That's the new car. That's the boat. That's the lake house. That's the little cottage that you dreamed about. They all come with the promise to make us happy, but that promise is a lie. These things alone won't make us happy. Always remember, you will never satisfy a spiritual need with a material thing. It takes something spiritual to satisfy that spiritual need. It takes the Spirit of God. I'm sure you've heard of a white elephant gift. You've heard of this? Sometimes this happens at Christmas time. We do it here around Calvary Chapel. You bring a gag gift. It's a gift that has no real useful purpose. It's usually only given for a laugh. But the real white elephant was no joke. In the country of Siam, a rare white elephant was a revered and a sacred animal. Only the king could own a white elephant unless he presented, with you, presented one to you as a gift. If you were honored by the king with a white elephant, you had to feed and water the animal. To kill it or sell it or release it would be an insult to the king. And so over time, the king of Siam began to learn that to punish his enemies, the best way to do so was to give them a white elephant. Sometimes he'd give them several. At first, the recipient felt honored. He thought the king was bestowing a blessing upon him, but over time, that blessing became a curse. For that elephant ate them out of house and home. They ended up going bankrupt trying to support the elephant. And Jesus is telling us that material things are like white elephants. Oh, at first you think they're a blessing, but then you watch them suck up your time and your effort and your family, and you waste all kinds of resources that you could be using to serve God, and you become a slave to your own stuff. Jesus is saying that God's Word can be choked out by earthly things. Verse 20, But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. There's hard ground, there's shallow ground, there's thorny ground. 
but there's also fertile ground. Receive God's word with a willingness to be changed by it. And dynamic transformations take place in your life. Power gets unleashed. You know, the average farmer expects an eight-to-one yield, an eight-fold yield. To bear a 30-fold yield is excellent. 60-fold would be incredible, but a 100-fold would just be downright miraculous. This means that God promises us a fruitful life beyond our wildest dreams as long as we supply Him with fertile soil. Is your heart fertile soil for the Word of God? When God sows the seeds of His Word, are you quick to obey? Are you quick to incorporate them into your thinking? Make them part of your life, part of your ways? We need to be receptive to God's Word. Well, Verse 21 And he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The mysteries of the kingdom were never meant to remain mysteries. God reveals his truth. He reveals all truth. The only question for us is, are we receptive? Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now here's the truth about spiritual growth. You need to know this. When it comes to spiritual growth, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. That may not be your economics, but that is the truth spiritually. The rich get richer and the poor get poor. If you are receptive to God's word, you'll bear fruit. Notice in increasing proportions, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Receive one blessing and another follows. But resist the truth and God shuts off all the blessings. I like to call it the snowball effect. Get the ball rolling in obedience to God. Get the ball rolling in being receptive to God. Get that ball rolling spiritually and it picks up steam. Before you know, you got a big, huge boulder rolling down the mountain. But if you resist God's truth, if you refuse to get it rolling, you become your own bottleneck. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. Notice the power, the life of God's kingdom is encased in the seed. The farmer adds nothing to the seed. He just plants it. Even God brings the rain. The seed grows when the farmer sleeps. That's that's his involvement. He's sleeping, but the seed's still growing. The growth comes from God. The power that one day will crush the wicked kingdoms of this world is today packed in a seed that gets planted in the human heart. The fruit of love and joy and peace and righteousness is a supernatural work of God's Spirit, and it depends on our heart's interaction with His Word, whether we're receptive or whether we're not. But it's God who does the work. 
And this should speak to those of us who want to see God's kingdom spread in today's world. Churches employ all kinds of gimmicks and strategies as if the key to church growth is how we toss the seed. Yet Jesus says in verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself. A skilled farmer can employ the latest methods in agriculture, but the miracle of life is in the seed and in its reception, not the farmer. And this is true of Christianity. Spiritual growth is a supernatural phenomenon. It requires a spiritual germination, which we can't manufacture. Notice Jesus says, For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. A farmer doesn't make anything grow. That's what he's saying. The change agent is the seed itself. This this is why if we want to see God's kingdom spread, then we need to sow the seed. Just sow the seed. That's all we need to do. Sow the seed. Pray for the harvest. Eventually the harvest will come. Sow the seed of God's word. If we want to see the kingdom spread, we need to declare God's word from this pulpit, but not just from this pulpit, from your pulpit, where you work, where you go to school, where you're involved. Verse 30, then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs, and shoots out large branches, so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Notice the mustard seed is smaller than all the seeds on earth. In Jewish literature, nothing was as tiny as a mustard seed. It was so minuscule, it was barely visible. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God starts out small and insignificant. It's barely seen. It flies below the world's radar. In fact, so much so that historians and sociologists can miss its impact or they can chalk it up to more tangible influences. Christianity is literally an underground movement. It's working in people's hearts. God's kingdom affects human institutions only as it affects those humans in those institutions. When he returns, Jesus will build his own institutions. For now, he saves souls rather than plays politics. And we should do likewise. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Jesus will further explain the nature of his kingdom. But first, he puts on display the power of the king in verse 35. For on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And notice those words, for here is the key. Jesus promises what? That they'll cross over to the other side. Not go under, but cross over. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, 
so that it was already filling. Now realize the Sea of Galilee is more a lake, only 14 miles long, just 8 miles wide, and it's notorious for sudden storms. The cold air off the Lebanese mountains pours in and hits the warm air on top of the lake. And presto, instant storms. Waves have been measured 25 feet. Notice Jesus and his men are in one boat. Other people are in little boats. A whole fleet feels the effects of this windstorm. Realize, just being with Jesus doesn't shelter you from the storms of life. There were other little boats with him that also felt the storm. Our Lord Jesus has ridden out many a storm with his disciples. And what is Jesus doing in the storm? Verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. He's not just asleep, he's sound asleep. He's snuggling with a pillow. Realize, just because the storm in your life caught you by surprise... Don't expect Jesus to react the same way. Jesus isn't surprised. It's not a shock to him. Jesus doesn't panic. He's not pacing and plotting and fretting like you are. Jesus is at rest. He's snuggling with his pillow. Recall what he told them on the shore while the sea was calm. Let us cross over to the other side. In the storm... Base your reaction on his promises, not your circumstances. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And how many times have we cried out the same? Lord, don't you care about me? Hey, just because Jesus refuses to panic doesn't mean he's abandoned you. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. Our outcome is in the palm of his hand. Jesus is at peace. The calm is in his palm. That's where you need to be. And then Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Notice Jesus rebuked the wind. That's what you do to a demon, isn't it? You rebuke him. It could be this storm was a satanic attack. Spiritual forces wanted to sink Jesus and his disciples. Who knew that little boat was the only ship in history that was truly unsinkable? It was the true Titanic. For God had promised it would cross over. Sadly, the only thing sinkable in the water that day was the faith of the disciples. And that's why he scolds them, verse 40. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Could Jesus say the same to you tonight? Why are you fearful? How is it you have no faith? Why are we so fearful and faithless when we have Jesus in our boat and he's made us the promise that we'll cross over? Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Is your heart fertile soil for God's word and God's promises? Let's cultivate an unsinkable faith.